This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Okay, good afternoon everyone. Um, welcome to this session on hyperselection. Um, I am not Susan Atkinson. Um, I'm Shivani Ranchard. I'm stepping in for Susan because she couldn't be here this afternoon. Um, so just going to briefly intro David, although um, he's so all over the program that you will probably hear him introed multiple times. <laughs> um, David and I were at university together. Um, one of the things I admire about him is his intellectual flexibility, um, which is, I guess, why he's all over the program talking about lots of different interesting things. Uh, he usually says that he specializes in risk and capital management, regulatory change, and insurance strategy. However, in recent years, he's been wondering whether, as actuaries, we actually think enough about the long term, um, which I think is, is quite an um, important question to be asking ourselves, because it really is how we conceptualize our, our role as a, as a profession. Um, so he's the principal at Milliman, um, and he recently became a member of the Long Now Foundation. I'm going to hand over to David. Thank you. Thank you, Shivani. Uh, that was kind, I think, although whether intellectual flexibility means I'll give you whatever view you want to hear, we could talk about climate change. All right, so if you'd asked me about hyperselection 10 years ago, I either would have said what or would have told you that control A is the keyboard shortcut. But over the last few years, I've been thinking more about ways of selecting better and getting very excited about how much could be done and then getting a little bit nervous about how much could be done. So I'm going to cover ground, and, and, and this really is hypersection focused in a life insurance uh, perspective. It probably is also relevant in the, the medical space, maybe less in South Africa, and uh, yes, also in the non-life space, maybe with fewer of some of the, the ethical, ethical questions. So let me first uh, define what I actually mean by hyperselection. It's not a university-defined term. And really here I'm talking about, uh, oh sorry, and before, let's just talk maybe about what selection is. So we get the, the policyholder selecting against the insurer, trying to uh, uh, use the information they have. And this can be anything from just choosing whether or not to apply for cover based on their own sense of, of uh, how risky they might be. And if so, is it a 20,000 sum assured funeral policy or a 2 million rand underwritten policy? And those decisions also can have an impact. Uh, there can be just uh, forgetting to mention information, as in genuinely forgetting, and there can be not disclosing broader, wider family issues. Um, and in, in fact, the, the beyond this, uh, adverse selection is relative criminal and policy abuse and fraud that can happen as well. So with that backdrop, insurers try to put in place a series of uh, mechanisms to, to prevent the worst of that, the simplest of which is a waiting period. So there's no real questionnaire, but you can't claim for the first three or six months. There could be exclusions for various items, specific or broad, and as we all know, over the last year or so, there's been plenty of debate, debate around those exclusions. You can then move on to a, a limited or a detailed set of underwriting questions for medical testing, and in some markets, the ability to re-underwrite during a, a specific period. Uh, premium revisions, more typically at a portfolio level than at an, than an individual policy level. But with the advent of uh, discounts and cashback and uh, benefits from a loyalty or wellness type system, that does provide some flexibility to effectively re-underwrite the risk over, over time. 
Now, when I talk about hyperselection, there are four components of it to me, and three of these are easy no-brainers. If you can make it faster and cheaper and a better customer experience, I think it's very hard to argue that these are bad things in any way. Any of you involved in the sales world realize how a slow sales process and having to wait for underwriting tests and getting a nurse's appointment really can absolutely kill the, the volumes of sales. So making it faster is just better all around. Cheaper, I mean, one of the real challenges we have around providing smaller policies is around the, the cost of cover. So decreasing the costs of uh, uh, acquisition, de decreasing the underwriting costs uh, would, would, would help from a profitability perspective and a value for money perspective as well. And then the customer experience, yes, we should also think about the customer experience, the ability to have fewer needles jabbed into you or an easier process or a friendlier process or a more conversational process, uh, faster and cheaper, obviously also part of the better customer experience. So those are all things that we can be moving towards um, and are, I think, generally just good. More precise risk selection, which is probably where I'm going to be focused most of the rest of the talk on, is also a good thing if we want just to be an actuary and we want to put people in as small as possible homogeneous uh, groups. But there are some questions which we'll come to in a moment. And so there, there are a range of mechanisms here. I'm going to talk very loosely through some of these principles, and then I'm going to delve into some more practical examples based on conversations I've had over the last year. And yes, many of these are the same sort of buzzwords that you would have heard over the last few years. So just faster processing ability allows us to, to apply monitoring models. Uh, getting the, the most out of existing sources of data. And that really then becomes a question of who has the most interesting data has the most significant advantage. Then also looking directly for new sources of data and deliberately, purposefully going together that new data. Uh, you don't need to use machine learning or AI, although there are some, some, some prospects for that. The ability to automate and integrate your underwriting processes. Uh, it's a term not very much used in South Africa, but so-called simplified issue policies. We try to get the policies issued as quickly as possible with limited underwriting. That's been a big trend in the, in the US. And the more you can make your own processes and your systems seamless and, 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 and joined up uh, with straight through processing can help at least with faster, cheaper, and probably a better customer experience. Uh, and then the, the, the new advent of mobile devices and the internet has enabled a lot of new, new approaches, new technology, and new data gathering. Okay, now on to the more interesting technical question on can we hyperselect? And I'm just going to describe an incredibly stylized, incredibly simple view of, of how you could go about this. So you have, ideally needs to have your exposure data and a set of possible rating factors. I mean, this is a very traditional sort of GLM-focused type of approach. But you also have uh, that the data in a more unstructured format and you know, trade different models on that. So I'm less focused on that, but you do need to have some data on which to train the data, to train the model. And yes, you would need some form of, of, of holdout data sets and validation data sets. And then there are two primary paths that you can follow. You can try to set, a, a, a train a series of models to predict the eventual outcome, being death or disability. And I mean, uh, large amounts of death data are very difficult to get hold of mapped back to the underlying exposure data you want to get. If you're a small tech startup, you may have brilliant ideas, where are you going to get the data from? Now, mortality and death is actually the easier one because there are public sources for that and home affairs has data. So there are ways you might be able to get those death decrements, but morbidity and disability and so on are a lot more difficult. But in any case, if you want to start doing a new approach now, we're going to need to wait many, many years before we have enough events to be able to fit the model on. So that really is the, the ideal in some ways, but there are some major constraints. Uh, 
Another way is that, well, let's not try to fit it based on the event, but rather to what the underwriting outcome or score would have been. So that then allows us to generate the data live here right now. We can go through the normal underwriting process, in parallel fit a range of new approaches and see how the two compare. So you get a much faster turnaround, you can build your, your models much more quickly, but the, almost the best outcome you can hope for is all the same limitations of your existing underwriting process and not too much noise. So it only takes you so far down, down the path. But the, these are the two broad approaches. I'm now gonna discuss a range of areas either based on conversation with the insurers or reinsurers that they are looking at or researching, some desktop research, but everything I'm talking about is something that people are looking at in some way around their, uh, their underwriting. So location data. So this is me in Greenpoint Park in Cape Town. And assuming that I'm there during the day or the afternoon and not at three in the morning sleeping in the park or doing drugs, that's probably a good place for me to be from a, a risk perspective. But that's just a single data point. This is me at 40 years old starting with tennis lessons and then riding my bike for my kids around Greenpoint Park. Again, those all look like fairly uh, healthy things to be doing. And the availability of that uh, tracking data, that movement data, that time data, that arguably speed data is also much more helpful. Um, you might be surprised how many people are actually tracking you. You may have a music app on your phone that would say, oh, please, can I have access to Bluetooth? It doesn't need access to Bluetooth to play the sound through your Bluetooth headset. That uses a different, set, uh, different part of the phone's OS. It wants Bluetooth, so it can track you. So this is a US example, but now the latest iPhone OS will actually ask you, are you sure you won't allow this app to be tracking you? Because that's what Dunkin' Donuts are doing, uh, apart from putting away all the good work from the tennis and the cycling. Uh, they are trying to track your location, which stores you're going to, what time are you going to. So there's a huge amount of tracking that really is happening. Um, there can be some slightly uh, nerve-wracking areas where you could use a combination of your, uh, uh, your, your, your purchases at various merchants along with your tracking data to de-anonymize some data, and there's some useful approaches there. Um, there's been discussion around using machine learning and AI. Uh, you, I guess you can do that. Um, they are, I mean, these approaches around location tracking are very prevalent in the online space and motor insurance. But actually the best results so far have come out not of machine learning with a, with a you know, huge amount of transactions, but rather tagging the data. This, what's, is this a bar? Is this a park? Is this a gym? Uh, and the, the times of day constraints. So it's more human in, in, intervention. I suspect that's just a matter of time before we move on to more typical AI or machine learning type approaches. Okay, so social media. Uh, I forget exactly when it was. It was a few years back that uh, Admiral Insurance was days away from launching their product, which was going to scrape your social media profile on Facebook and use that to set your premium. And uh, a bit bizarre to me that the things that they were looking at, but you know, if you uh, used uh, clear sentences, you might be a better risk than if you used too many emojis. Um, if you said you're going to meet at a certain place at a certain time rather than just tonight, that might show that you're more conscientious and more diligent. That might be a good thing for risk. Anyway, this, this was uh, sometime shortly after the Cambridge Analytica scandal first broke, and of course, the first thing Facebook did is pull the permission for Admiral to use their platform to actually do underwriting on. But of course, Facebook and others do have a huge amount of data about you, what you like, when you like, how you engage with, with, uh, with, with the website. Uh, you can use natural language processing and um, uh, 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 to, uh, to understand what's going on in, in the text and pull out the, the themes and the feelings. You can in, you know, analyze the network of friends that you connected to. There's a huge amount of data that is available there that could be used. And uh, it, it can be a challenge to understand exactly uh, how that is being used. Now, you may recognize the little network diagram there of the, the brain that is Cambridge Analytica's logo. 
And just as a reminder, they were able, by getting a large sample, but not a complete sample, a large sample of people on Facebook to complete a survey, and then they're able to tie that to the rest of their profile, and then were able to use other people's profiles to map back to the survey to understand their political leanings. So they didn't need to have access to all of the Facebook data. Similarly, if you could get a reasonable size subset of people and get them to do an underwriting process to assess their risk, maybe there's a way to then use the rest of their Facebook profile or the social media profile to inform the underwriting. I, I guess I do worry that this may be coming down the line, but I'm also a little bit skeptical at the moment. Having a, a sentiment of links to your political leanings from your Facebook profile does seem a little bit more directly linked than trying to get to underwriting results, but there are um, entities that are, are looking at this. Uh, 23andMe was one of, of several uh, home DNA kit providers, and that really has changed the landscape for DNA testing in the last few years. It is cheaper than ever before, it's quicker than ever before, and by 2017 they collected 4,000 litres of spit. That's how many people have been through this, this whole process. Uh, they don't sequence the entire genome, but they do get access to a fair amount of it. And although they got in a little bit of a trouble by claiming uh, overly grand health prediction benefits, they do now have approval for, for a range of them, and they are working on more. And of course, they do keep your data and can reanalyze it over time. Uh, and if that were submitted to an insurer, even the report, that could also be reanalyzed over time. Um, I say it's cheap, it's not, it's not free, and it's also not instant. It does take some question of weeks before it is processed. Um, but there's also a question around what the real value is from genome sequencing. A friend of mine works at a uh, genetics lab somewhere in Cambridge, and she's saying in all, all the evidence that they've seen so far, the benefit that you get at the moment from a deep, rich family history, which obviously ties into a lot of the genetics, but also the uh, epigenetics and the, 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 the nurture and the environment, environmental factors, at the moment, that is probably better than what you get from gene, gene testing, except in some very, very specific areas. Um, for all these things, we really do need to look at what is the marginal benefit of adding this in. If we're going to get a 5% improvement over a detailed family history, there may not be um, all that much uh, benefit. Uh, now, there's mixed evidence of uh, what the relationship is between taking the test and taking out insurance. There's a Swiss Re report some pretty astounding numbers. I think they said that they estimated maybe as much as 20% of the US population had taken a DNA test. That, that, that seems like a terrifyingly big number to me. And that also there was both a, a, a encouragement to do uh, to, take healthy life decisions after being uh, told of risk factors from the DNA test. And also, I think it was a, it's a day, 10 times like, uh, increased in, sorry, let me just check the actual number before I make up stories. Um, a four big part, a four time, you're four times more likely to take out additional life cover after having had an adverse reaction from the DNA test. At the moment in South Africa, there's been a bit of noise around gene testing and services and benefits offered, but certainly to my knowledge, nobody is using DNA testing for run-of-the-mill uh, uh, life insurance testing. But if you've had a genetic test, you would be required to disclose it to your insurer. So it also is, it can be a reluctance maybe to go get the testing because the information is now available. Um, but you know, I spoke about the value of family history testing. Maybe you could still ask for that, but it's useful to go and check in. Is there some information from, from the, the DNA test which tells something different? IntelliScript, uh, and in fairness, this is a, a Melbourne product in the US, not, not available here. And this was originally a health product to help uh, uh, health insurers understand their risk. 
Um, the Affordable Care Act uh, diminished that, so now moves into life insurance space. And basically, when you're filling in your proposal form to get a policy, you tick the box saying, yes, you have permission to access my pharmacy records, and they ping the, many of the large networks of pharmacies around the US, and they pull your history of prescriptions and drugs and timing and when, and, that, and they effectively convert that into an underwriting score to predict mortality. Uh, uh, quite a few regions have looked at that. So again, it's uh, data that does exist, but it's plugging into it to, to, to help underwriting. This is Aura. It's one of many sleep trackers. It's not the only one, but it is uh, one of the better ones. Uh, if you haven't listened to Matthew Walker's uh, podcast with Peter Atia, or you haven't read his book, Why We Sleep, you should. I'm basically not drinking coffee anymore as a result, which is a little bit sad. But he really does talk about the massive, massive benefits of sleep, anything from cardiovascular disease, mental health, Alzheimer's, cancer, diabetes, obesity, accidents, and workplace functioning. So it's very, very clear that, that sleep and adequate sleep and consistent sleep and sleep quality has a huge impact on our health and our life outcomes. But you know, this is not something you can just put on during the underwriting process. Uh, you could maybe do during a, a limited underwriting period. It could be part of a wellness program to gather some sort of data and to provide discounts over time. But this particular device is $400, and it is basically a standalone uh, activity and sleep tracker, so it's, it's hardly cheap. The Apple Watch obviously has a huge installed base, but at the moment doesn't really do sleep tracking, and battery life wouldn't really support that in any case. But onto the Apple Watch, one of the beauties about the Apple Watch is that there are a huge number of people who have them available, that can do constant heart rate monitoring, heart rate variability modeling, monitoring, and ECG. The you know, Apple and Stanford University have put, come together to create a, a, a research program, seeing what additional data can they get from their watch to improve heart health specifically, but that can be extended over time. There's also fall detection and hearing protection, which may have applications to more long-term care products, but it's less directly relevant for, uh, for underwriting a risk product early on. Continuous glucose monitoring this is probably the one that is least currently practical from an underwriting perspective. But this is a device and you in a little applicator and you stick it into your, your, your stomach and it stays there for seven to 10 days and it measures your blood glucose every five or so minutes, transmits it to another device and can transmit it to your phone. So you get a constant view of what your blood sugar is doing. You can understand what impact exercise and stress and quantity and type and timing of food has on your blood sugar. And that is an incredibly useful thing for people with type 1 or type 2 diabetes. There are applications where you can link it automatically directly into an insulin pump. The presentation before this I was in was cyber risk, so it does make me worry a little bit about how that could, could work. Uh, so there's a huge amount of information, a huge amount of rich information, but it's probably more likely to be used to provide insurance cover somebody who is pre-diabetic or diabetic, and if you can keep within a program and monitor your blood glucose levels rather than actually being used uh, as an initial underwriting step. This is one of my favorites. This is a neuro, and I've used it about 12 times myself today to see my stress levels. And this is, at the moment, the app is limited. You take a 30-second video selfie. It's, it, it's free. They probably send the data to Russia. It's free, and it monitors the blood flow in your face and tells you your heart rate and a stress score, which I think is based primarily on heart rate variability. That's kind of cool and interesting. The same organization has got a, a paper out showing that a two-minute video can predict blood, can, can measure blood pressure. And when that starts to be applied, that gets a lot more interesting. Uh, you may know that you know, there's an there's a, uh, issue that if you go get your blood pressure taken, there's somebody wearing a uniform, there's needles around, that smells of antiseptic. Oftentimes, blood pressure is elevated just by the fact of being in that sort of environment. So here you could be on a virtual sales call with a broker. 
And in addition to being speaking to the, the call agent, they are monitoring your face, and there can be stress and lying and fraud, but also blood pressure. So you made it cheaper, easier, faster, and you're getting blood pressure readings for everybody rather than just those people who need to get to that stage of, of underwriting. So this is, this is, this is pretty cool. Uh, voice analysis, also really, really interesting. I spoke about fraud before. There's been a lot of interest in using stress analysis in your voice to understand uh, uh, fraud, but also still research which is still on its way to understand possible uh, health diagnoses uh, from the voice analysis. Now, when I talk about voice recordings and voice analysis, some insurers get quite excited because many of us have been recording our sales calls from a compliance perspective, making sure we go through all the processes but oftentimes those have been compressed to such an extent that a lot of the fidelity is lost. So it's not clear that you're going to get that much use out of that voice analysis, and it's still quite a long way to go before we are able to join that together. But again, something where by just improving the quality of recordings that already exist, we could tie it into the underwriting scores that we have now and the uh, uh, mortality and morbidity outcomes over time. That's also pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, this is, the, uh, uh, I like this picture. This is me searching for free pictures on sort of superheroes. I'm not sure whether those are superheroes or vampires, and I think both apply. So this really is the, the meatiest part of the data that really is available. Medical scheme data or HMO data in the US, wellness scheme data, loyalty scheme data, banking transactional data are just this insanely, insanely rich source of data that you can pull out amazing, amazing insights. Now, it should be fairly clear how you could use the medical scheme data from an underwriting perspective, that, you know, that, that's fairly straightforward. Um, Wellness scheme data as well. I mean, I think discovery with vitality is, is very much on record for many, many years now, showing the difference in the mortality and morbidity, whether you're on platinum status or, or blue status vitality, and what benefit can come from that. And I think for a long time we assumed that this is a wellness program. It has been making people more well, and therefore has been improving their, uh, their health. Then you see the measure that a lot of loyalty scheme uh, data, which doesn't have an explicit wellness element, also provides fairly significant differentials in health, mortality, and morbidity. And suddenly we're starting to ask ourselves, well, is the wellness data because we are encouraging people to be more well? Are we selecting those people who are more well? Or is there something else going on that there's a risk factor here around conscientiousness and diligence and spending the time to game the system to improve your, your, your rating? Uh, and in the same way that a credit score is an incredibly useful predictor for your motor vehicle claims, your diligence, conscientiousness, prepared to put the time in, maybe suggests that there's something else going on there. And that's not to take away from the fact that a wellness program is probably better and it probably does encourage and motivate and incentivize the right sort of actions, but what it means is you don't need to have that sort of data. You don't need to have medical scheme data to necessarily get some really, really rich, amazing data. Now, transactional data here, and I'm talking about payment data, is also incredibly rich. We have you know, the amounts spent, the history of the amounts spent, the time it was spent, the type of merchant, the, the specific merchant, the change in those amounts over time. So there's a huge amount of data that can be monitored. And if you're a bank and you're lucky enough to also know when your banking customers die, there's also more work that you can be done with that. But you know, very few of us actually have access to that, that, that transactional data. Uh, and in Australia and Europe and the UK, there's this thing called open banking. It goes in different names, different places where banks, especially the larger banks, are being required to give you access to your own data. So if you bank with Dave's bank, Dave's bank has all this amazing rich data that they can use for themselves and their own purposes, but then it can't be Dave, it has to be Shivani now. Shivani can request her information from Dave's bank 
uh, to be able to understand it and use it in other services. So it starts to maybe release some of the value of the transactional data from the people who created it. But we are still back to the problem of that training data set. Just having your own data isn't that useful because somebody still needs to be able to have created a model to know what to do with their data. Uh, mobile data, uh, again, it's, it's very clear how much data the mobile network providers can collect and do collect around location and contacts and who you're calling and time and location and so on. Um, so far in South Africa, I've seen a lot less focus on that. Um, although when you ask financial services firms why they encourage you to turn uh, location uh, uh, tracking on their app on, Sometimes get a couple of kind of slightly awkward looks. So that data is being collected uh, by our financial service providers. I'm not sure to what extent they are using it for uh, underwriting just yet. Okay, so this is just back, back to the same slide, just to focus again that we've got all these cool things that we can do to gather the data, to get the rating factors, to build models, but you do need to have that data. So it's one of the reasons uh, startups often end up either partnering with a reinsurer or a reinsurer invests in the startup. The reinsurers have data, the reinsurers have the existing underwriting approaches. They can then more easily start combine force with the startup to, to, to move things along. Okay, another practical constraint on whether we can hyperselect is that the FSCA has the policy protection rules and that limits what we're allowed to do. It limits uh, discrimination, limits fair discrimination. You probably by now, now all know that in Europe you're no longer allowed to discriminate on gender. Also sorry about how that was going to ruin the world, doesn't make much of a difference. And there's also been some stories in the news recently around people using other people's wellness programs, and is this inducement and some real sort of claims going around there. So I think there is a little bit of noise in the space, but there are some restrictions on what you can and can't do. Our constitution also has general anti-discrimination language, so there are some that believe that that should be extended more, more broadly in the insurance space, something to watch. And then a CISA, I think they've got a range of documents, including, I think it's a 2009 document, which is a code on genetic testing, which is still the one that most insurers apply with. So these are some of the constraints and restrictions of what we can do from a hyper selection perspective. Okay, so I'm a big SpaceX fan, a big space fan in general, and one of their mottos, and in fact where NASA have complimented SpaceX on their ability to iterate and just fail fast and build it again. So here's this beautiful iconic view of the first Falcon Heavy, the two landers coming down to land together, but you know, this was what had preceded some of those. So the question for me is, in this new gathering data, building new routines, can we fail faster in financial services? Is you know, getting, the wrong, getting, getting the price wrong, getting our solvency wrong, is that really acceptable? Uh, and I, I'm not sure that it, that it is. On a related note, uh, Leonardo da Vinci designed a bridge in the 1500s. I think it was uh, for the Sultan of, uh, in, in Amman, and there was this massive long bridge, and it was never built. So you had this brilliant design, 500 or so years later, an MR team has built a scale version of that, three different components, and demonstrated that that idea could work. So we want to be looking at what could be happening over time, but we need to get the timing of that right rather than getting too far uh, ahead. And then there's the challenge of integrating all the newfangled ideas and newfangled techniques, newfangled models into the rest of our IT administration systems. I was having a conversation with somebody recently who's been uh, doing a lot on the sales front end and saying that sometimes their offer to the insurer they deal with is to basically re-implement parts of their system rather than spend the drama of trying to actually integrate with the existing system. And that, that's not a particularly uh, positive place to be in. Okay, so that, that's just a taste of whether we can, what the options are, what's been happening on, what, what some of the guys have been looking at. Um, but the question I really want to get into, and I guess this is the reason why this is a professionalism session, is should we hyper-select? 
So we've touched on discrimination already, and I think, you know, when underwriting was first removed from medical schemes 20 or so years ago, a lot of us had a natural inclination to say, well, that, that can't work, we need to underwrite, we want people to put them in little boxes. And it's not to say that the lack of underwriting in the health space doesn't have ch real challenges uh, as well, but it's, it's maybe worked better than we had feared 20 plus years ago. I hope most of us will have sympathy that somebody born, especially in South Africa, anywhere in the world, to a poorer family is gonna have poorer nutrition, poorer education, uh, poorer educated parents, which give them uh, a lot of disadvantages, uh, poor job prospects, poor income down the line, poor nutrition, lower life expectancy, poor health, poor health outcomes, and now we can charge them more for insurance. And we already do that to some extent. You look at the, the price of a funeral policy at 100,000 rand some insured cover versus a 300,000 rand underwritten policy, and there are some, some very, very big differences there. Uh, you know, insurance is about risk management, but it is also about pooling. And if we discriminate too easily, it does become quite uh, potentially questionable to, to my mind. There's also, to my mind, a fundamental difference between something over which you have control and something over which you were born with. So you know, the, the arguments against genetic testing is that it's expensive and so on, but also is it fair that because you have a, a, a genetic predisposition to, to heart disease that you're now going to pay more for insurance where you've got no control over that? So if these are inherent characteristics of which you have no control, I would argue that the bar should be even higher. I'm probably gonna do a presentation some year on free will and the fact that it doesn't exist, which means even the things that you think you have control over, maybe you don't, but that we can move to, to, to another, another presentation. Behavior modification is another one that I worry about. So we spoke about the, the, the caution that you should apply when getting a home DNA test. And that's principally people worry about the, the information that gets out there, but also having to disclose those results to an insurer. I mean, in some ways, the rational answer, if you wanted to find out, would be would to go buy your life insurance cover and want to prove the next day and go and get the genetic testing results so you wouldn't have to disclose it rather than the other way around. But also, I, I do firmly believe that social media is, is evil. And if organizations are using your social media profile and your platform and your likes to underwrite you, and then you don't have that, you may well find yourself falling into a bucket of higher risk or uncertainty. We don't have information around that. And so what would I then be pushed into joining social media and rejoining Facebook for this purpose? I mean, I think Facebook and social media in general can be unhealthy in terms of putting forward an artificial view of yourself. If you're now going to spend your life trying to uh, create an insurance-friendly view of yourself and your friends on, on Facebook, that also rings back to the movie Gattaca, which some of you may remember from around 1998. Definitely worthwhile re-watching that. So there can be a lot of you know, uh, uh, disincentives around appropriate behaviors that you can do if you, you go down too far, too far down this path. Then transparency or explainability. This is particularly true if we're dealing with the, the largest data sets um, and AI and machine language. Are you able to explain to your pricing team, to your head of actual function, to your board, and most importantly, to your customer? Why have I just been given a 20% higher premium than somebody else? What has been going on that? Um, and there, there is a move in the AI space around towards literally explainable AI and routines around that, but it is another layer that needs need to be done on that. Um, sometimes you really do need to try to explain your model results. For example, I've seen analysis that says that if you shop at clicks, your mortality is lower, which is because you're female. Um, uh, yeah, so there, there are some uh, uh, 
key age and gender and other factors that you absolutely have to remove before that analysis before it can be worthwhile. And then privacy. You know, all this additional data, all this additional analysis that is being uh, stored somewhere, it's probably only a matter of time before it does become available uh, to, to anybody who wants to, to, to access it. Uh, and you know, how much information I, I should be uh, allowed to keep for myself. Then we want to the right to know or the right to choose to know or to not know. You can imagine a scenario where maybe on the application website or app, the algorithm in the background is trying to understand how your hand is shaking or not shaking on the mouse and how that's changing over time. Or through whatever analysis or DNA testing or deep learning comes out to find out that you have a disease. It would be quite a weird situation for the insurer to know this important fact about you and you not know it about yourself. On the other hand, the suicide rate in the first two years after getting a Huntington's diagnosis is 10 times baseline. So if your insurer knows that you have Huntington's and you don't know, do you actually want to know? Does the insurer have the right to tell you? Do they have the obligation to tell you? How are they going to actually make some of those, those decisions? Okay, and then the costs are, are there. Um, what part of the aim is obviously to decrease costs, but also if you end up in a situation where everybody just invests more time and more energy in underwriting differently, there won't necessarily be an advantage for anybody. In fact, underwriting and selection, adverse selection, can be quite stable if uh, people don't have a lot of access to, to, to uh, price information or be able to price compare. You can have an environment of pretty limited underwriting. There will be an extent of adverse selection, but you can reach a continuum where the, the pricing allows for that. What we've done as we've increased price comparison sites, information availability, be able to get multiple quotes, we're actually not be able to optimize, a policy can't just optimize between two insurers based on the brand that they like, the customer service, the product design, the efficiency. They are more actively able to go and look for mispricing by, I know about this myself, this insurer hasn't done it, and be able to sort of almost uh, uh, weaponize the ability to adverse select. So you, know, you could move this program over time, not necessarily end up in a better place for anybody, but just have a lot more costs in the system. But competitive pressure is absolutely going to need you to do this. If you are the only insurer who isn't selecting for smoker status, I suspect you're gonna have a fair number of smokers in your portfolio and your, your claims experience won't be, won't be that great. Uh, so expecting an individual insurer to take this action on their own, I think is quite harsh. I'm not usually a fan of regulation. I'm not usually the one who says we need, we need more, more regulation. But if we recognize that there is a coordination problem, that even if each individual insurer wanted to take a step back from this hyper-selection, it wouldn't be rational for them to do it. And we can remember our game theory from first year university, whatever, they would be required to, do, to, to, to keep up. So in this case, it might be appropriate then from a coordination perspective to have regulation which says you may not use A, B, and C factors. And it would probably be in the insurer's interest, the industry's interest, and the policyholder's and citizen's interest. When I was discussing this with a colleague, they did raise the awkward problem of, well, that we could do within South Africa. And although there are restrictions on being able to actually sell policies from another country here, it's certainly possible to buy a policy from another market. So if you are a healthier life, you can demonstrate, you can show your DNA badge of how good you are, you still might be able to arbitrage that across national borders. I think for now, anyway, that's a relatively modest concern. Me. The last one I want to talk about is FANG. Um, and I'll get back to that in a moment. 
Um, presumably, you know that this is Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and, and Google. Um, so bizarrely enough, I heard the uh, Aerosmith theme tune for Armageddon in one of the sessions earlier. So I don't know if they saw the slide and, and linked in with some deep learning. This is the movie Armageddon from the late 90s. Who remembers that, that Ben Affleck was actually in the movie? The premise of the movie is that there's a giant asteroid coming towards the Earth, and we need to drill a hole in it, plant a nuclear bomb to blow it off course. There's two weeks to train the team to go and do that. So rather than getting a crack team of experienced engineers, very, very smart, physically fit, know how to get into space, know how to fly, do orbital mechanics, and teach them to drill a hole, instead we take some oil diggers and teach them how to fly in space, work machinery, work the nuclear bomb, deal with orbital mechanics. So my question is, if this is all going to be about big data and the best algorithms, is it going to be easier for insurers to learn all of that and get access to all the data? Or is it going to be easier for the guys who have the data and the data analytics and the tech to start encroaching on our space? So even if you don't like the idea of moderating discrimination, even if you don't want to make sure we have fair coverage, even if you don't want to necessarily apply with regulation that may be coming down the trough, maybe from a purely self-interested commercial perspective, it's worth saying, do we want to go down this path that 10, 20 years from now we've gone down to this path that we can't back off from, and these companies and others are the ones eating our lunch? Now, this morning, Alan spoke about the fact that he doesn't think these companies are going to be the ones moving into insurance. It may well be right. They don't need to move into insurance. They just need to be the ones with the APIs and the apps and the other routines that they charge you for to get access to be able to underwrite. And that's my mind is perfectly within the wheelhouse, perfectly within the sorts of things that they would be doing. So I think as an industry, we need to think about this from an ethical perspective. What will the long-term consequences be? And maybe selfishly, what would the, the commercial uh, interest be? So if we're going to ask about hyperselection, the one question is, can we? And I think the answer mostly is yes, and just more so over time. It's coming down the road. The technology available is going to make this easy and trivial. The question on should you, as an individual insurer, I think the answer is probably yes. In the next few years, if you don't uh, keep up to date, you're going to find yourself outcompeted by those who are doing this. But the question of should we, I think the answer is that we need to be very, very careful. We need to find a way to deal with the coordination problems, not find ourselves down a path that we don't want to, to go uh, 10, 20 years down the line. Thank you. Thanks, David. Um, so we open for questions from the floor. Hi, uh, I'm Johan from Old Mutual. Um, so, essentially, this idea of like whether we should do it or not is something that, like, it's like it's very important because the more data we have, uh, this it tends to conglomerate into you know big companies or even governments, um, and like I'm worried that we would see a move more toward what China is doing at the moment. I think where they essentially the government controls a lot of the data. Um, and they're able to essentially mandate a lot of behaviors from citizens. So the impacts on human freedom is potentially scary. I mean, you might imagine more data means that you're more accurate, that you can be more fair, but it can also be that there is something in the data that isn't being uh, measured correctly, or there's a bias in the, the government or the large entity that's controlling this data that they want a certain kind of behavior. And so if you're not in the norm, if you're slightly 
if your behavior is slightly different, you may be discriminated against, your freedoms may be impinged. And uh, you know, I don't know if regulation is the answer to this question. I mean, there's certainly probably a lot of questions about GDPR in, in Europe and whether it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. Um, but I think it's like this is going to become a very big issue. You know, if you have any comments on that. Yeah, th th thanks, thanks for the comment. I will just take a couple of thoughts from that. I didn't really cover enough the idea that you could build a model which is wrong, what has the inherent biases of the people involved, or it is just based on the data that was, was scored. And there are so many examples of these uh, really embarrassing problems for, for tech companies of having you know, gotten it wrong. And at the same time, you know, we can talk about China as a slightly scary story around what they do with the data and the control around it. I'm not convinced that the tech companies have covered themselves in glory either in what they have done with data, how they protected data, and how they've protected us. So I think those concerns are right here now. And your point around the, the you know, data being this incredibly valuable resource, that should you part of this, is it absolutely, you know, entities should be gathering as much data as they can, as valuable, you, you, you would be irresponsible to your shareholders not to make the most uh, use of that. Um, when I chat to, to some uh, colleagues in the US, when they will do a data-based uh, uh, assignment, they fairly regularly get the data to be able to use elsewhere. I'm actually kind of encouraged in South Africa, most of my clients are very reluctant to hand over the data. I think that's generally a good thing. Like, I think I'm trustworthy with data, but the general principle of not just letting the data go kind of everywhere is, is a little bit crazy. Any other questions? I have to say, very interesting for me as a healthcare actuary, um, you know, working in that kind of social solidarity space. Um, and I wonder if the answers to these questions will differ between societies, you know? So it, there's almost a, a more fundamental philosophical question as a society as to where do you sit on that spectrum of social solidarity and risk pooling versus selection. I think where you sit and arguably where you want to sit, what sort of society we want to help create, because this can be, you, you have this as a society, it allows you to do this, that has an impact back on society, we get used to this over, over time. Absolutely. Uh, friends of mine recently went to France to check out a school, Fine, very, very nice school, uh, four course meal during lunch, it's 40 euros a term, but only if you can afford it, otherwise just pay what you, what you want. It's a very different feel and model from you know, the US model, and I think we probably lean at times more towards the US side than to the, the social uh, side. Hi, thank you very much for the talk, um, Nathan. Um, just a good question. So I think eventually over time we're going to, I think it's going to happen that we're going to hyper-select. One company is going to start. Um, it'll seem innovative. Everyone's then going to follow eventually. Um, but with things that happen like in the UK where they're no longer um, um, using gender as a pricing factor, it means regulations kind of countering this in a way. Um, how do you think insurers um, should then kind of, do you think we should then try fight back regulation or what do you think would be the future? I think that the default of almost any entity is to fight back against regulation. Just almost like, you know, doesn't matter what it is, no, it's gotta be the answer. And I have a fair amount of sympathy for that a lot of the time. But I guess what I want to do, my, my, my aim from this, this, this presentation, is to make us think that you know, just because we can fight back against it, maybe because we, we want to do some cool new latest thing, and that on the next one year or three year horizon, this could be a good thing for us, actually, on a 10 year view, is it going to make any positive difference? And I'd argue probably not. 
And is there the chance for it to create a very big negative difference? I think there's a very risk, real risk that it would be. And again, I don't think it's reasonable to expect individual insurers to take the right decision. Um, so we had to wonder, what, is regulation the answer? I think, I think in this case it may well be, but we'll, we'll see if uh, an alien race comes down and brainwashes us and, and makes us better people. Yeah, I wonder if there's not um, kind of a happy medium which is coming to me from the group space. So it's... The data is out there. The data is available to the customers, and um, it might, it's probably important for the insurer to at least collect it. Not to say they have to use it to price that person. So, for example, in a typical group scheme, you take a lot of data, but everyone gets a unit rate, right? So, it feels like I mean I'm on the value, valuation actuary, so I feel like I'd like to know the information to know how different my portfolio is than I would than I think, right? So you might be being you might be being selected against massively and you might think, oh, I have to change my product. I have to react. So that feels like a kind of a defensive approach. I think I agree quite a lot. I don't disagree. I think there also is still a natural instinct to I want to have the data. I like I know this thing is valuable, I'll I find a reason to have it. Um, I mean, the group space also has uh, uh, compulsory uh, participation, which has a big impact there. But I would agree that if you don't know effectively the mix of your portfolio, and maybe today it's okay, and today your loss ratios are okay, but to recognize that a trend is getting away from you, that might be really important, really useful information to have. Uh, really didn't want to bring up IFRS 17 in this talk, but there's also a question of, well, if you know information about your risk and the profitability of individual policies or cohorts, uh, in theory, you're supposed to be using that in your accounting, which also is going to be quite unattractive. So maybe one or two reasons why people literally want to have, at least either don't know or want to have plausible deniability about knowing, or at least not, not tell the accountants anyway. We've got one over there, and then we'll come to you. Good afternoon, and thanks. Really exciting and interesting talk. Just thinking, if we take hyper-selection to the extreme, um, what impact could that have on in our industry as a whole? You know, Because if only the, the really healthy and fit and all those get, get insured, premiums might be quite low, and they're the only people that get insured. And then you have a massive amount of the, the population that, that can't actually afford insurance. So uh, yeah, I think that that's a good summary of one of the core issues. I guess it does depend how far you want to take happen to the extreme. If you know exactly when somebody's going to die, you can probably give them a good policy for one day less than that. Um, you know, when we went to a world where like policies were just for accidental death, but actually predicting accidental death can be quite an important part of that. I don't like the society where, again, only the fortunate and lucky, because if you are healthy, you're probably also very, very lucky financially or genetically or otherwise. I don't like the society. I don't think that's one that we should want to to create. Um, hi, I just wanted to ask your opinion on um, preferred life insurance, which is, a, I think, uniquely American, where you don't only have smoker, non-smoker, but you have subcategories of non-smoker. So you could be preferred, super preferred, elite plus, depending on the, the nominations, um, uh, the, the labeling that each insurance company gives. I remember from about maybe 20 years ago when this was introduced, or when I first came across it, 
The actuary said there wasn't the data for this, it was just the more of a marketing tool, and the, the challenge for them was, well, how much of a discount would you give the, uh, the, the, the low-weight um, gym uh, fanatic, who non-smoker, no family history of cardiac uh, problems, etc., that they were placing, they were creating a super high category. So for me, that's hyper-selection, where uh, a theory um, has has uh, well, you know has created a product without the data. So there was a demand or a, a supply rather than a, a demand. I'm, I work in Mauritius. Uh, I'm the uh, chief actuary at, at the national insurance company there. And what's a, what's interesting to note as an observation is the market in Mauritius has unisex aggregate smoker rates. Now, you'd expect, and I've worked there in the past 10 years, and I've kept saying the first person to introduce just a smoker product would clean up the market. But, initial, but no one does, and effectively, uh, the conclusion I've reached is, universally, insurance is sold. It's not bought. So basically, it's a question of what the supply is. So even the, the fact that somebody could introduce non-smoker rates, and I think one company did, but the market just didn't care. And the pricing is done at, a, at a, a group level. So what you're talking about there in Mauritius is a perfectly stable underwriting setup without a huge amount of precision, and it works. It, it works just fine. I was in Beirut telling all the insurers there sort of 15 years ago why they absolutely should be pricing the motor insurance a whole lot more factors. And it's been like, why? There was no problem. Of course, I'm not going to take all the blame, but over time, slowly one or two insurers, after they had their students you know, educated in France, they bring back those ideas. Now you have to unwrite on a whole lot more factors because everybody's doing it. Nobody's really actually better off. There's an interesting book which I blogged about, and then the author didn't like my review, which was a bit awkward, uh, called Loss Coverage by a guy called Guy Thomas. And it is pretty interesting. His basic premise is that a little bit of adverse selection is a good thing. Because if we want to have the best cover for the highest risks so be able to cover the most claims, actually having it be slightly a good deal for the high risk ones to take on the policies, I think, could be worthwhile. My issue was whether actually that, that definition of you want to have the most claims covered is necessarily the right one. But there are plenty of arguments kind of inconsistent with a lot of our training around must have that small heterogeneous ultimate, at least hypothetical uh, risk done. But I think there should be a lot of value in having a simple, stable setup. My concern is why I said that stable, it's also fragile. It takes one decent-sized player to decide to take that step, and then you need to move to a new, new um, stability point. While waiting for the question, I guess this also uh, reflects my thinking on underwritten annuities. Quite a lot of buzz, quite a lot of hype, very different reasons in the UK why they went down that market without a living annuity-type product. But in South Africa, as you know, more people are looking at this, it's not necessarily really going to change all that much, except it's going to have a whole lot more work and underwriting, and I think we are still at a relatively stable position. It's just, just in terms of that stable position, I think what one has to overlay a bit of uh, fairness and value for money onto that as well. So say so you have a car, car insurance market and everyone pays the same, I mean, for someone who's driving 30,000 guys a year versus someone driving 3,000 guys paying the same premium, I mean, that, that's just not fair. So I, I think you need some measure of differentiation, but you can get too much as well. And I think there you need to understand also price elasticity, and you touched on it. I mean, if you have, 
UK market aggregator sites. I mean, a 2% premium change can have a massive delta on your volume. And that's why people invest more and more to get more granular. But if your distribution channel or market's not doing that, you're just dumping cost onto it. So as a regulator, I don't think you want to interfere too much. I think you almost just want to look at the key customer outcomes and say, listen, what's the things we want to prevent here? If, if it gets so sophisticated that people, people spend 80% of the premiums on, on developing the model and the client's getting 20 cent in a rand back, then it didn't work for the community, then you need to pair it back. Or if someone charges low premiums up front and then nail people on, on, on their renewals just because of the elast elasticity, that's also not desirable. Then you can interfere and make regulations around that. But I think overall, you don't want to interfere too much because more accurate means generally more fair. So you, you make a range of interesting points, uh, particularly on the non-last space. And the non-last space does have its own real set of issues around uh, demand pricing and uh, macro pricing and sensitivity analysis and teaser rates. And all There's plenty there that probably should be regulated away. I said I wasn't in favor of regulation. Maybe I'm not. I don't know. Um, the point around the kilometers or the usage, I think that is worth having a category for an exposure base. Yes, if somebody is getting more use out of the insurance, I think that, that, that isn't going to drive uh, fairness or unfairness issues. Um, I'm not at all convinced, though, that fair equals getting the closest probability for that person. That is one half of the fairness equation, but not at all. And I guess the, the biggest part of my stretch is that I don't think it is fair that somebody who's born with a set of disadvantages is going to get that over and over and over again over life, over time. And competition and hypersection will drive us down that path. It's not the only area that I'm concerned about. Um, you know, uh, who has control of the information, what they want to do, behave, there's a whole lot of other areas. But I think it's, it's a very narrow definition of fair. It's an acceptable, correct one. It's a very narrow definition of fair is that you want to get the probability uh, of, of claim or event as close as possible to, to correct. Maybe, maybe I, I tend to agree with you. I think maybe there's a distinction a bit between the life and the non-life yep. space because in the life space, obviously, a lot of the factors you don't have control over and it will be really unfair to be penalised for that. In the non-life space, how much you drive, when you drive, those things are more inside your control. So as much as I say I don't really believe in free will, that's not my day-to-day -day, um, decision process. Somebody who has 12 beers and gets in their car and drives... Yeah, I don't think I want to be ensuring them. I don't think I want to be encouraging that behavior. Free will philosophically complicates that. So I think in general, yes, I agree that non-life insurance, they are a different set of considerations. There's no particular reason to believe that they are the same. I don't think there are none of the same considerations. I think we're pretty much on time. Is there one last question or...? Okay, I think that's it. Um, David, thank you very much for a very thought-provoking talk. Um, warm round of applause for David, please. Thank you very much, everybody. And Shivani, thank you for the last minute 6 a.m. Uh, call in. Thanks, everybody.